192. I'm your host, Mike Apps, a.k.a. Wheels, with me as always. 100 nails that pierce your skin, Damon Bernie, Family Master. And be very, very quiet. I've got napping girls. Um, your manager, Japan, Michael Baker, guy, Gene Minogatari. You've got a. Uh, we have a case of the flu in the other room. Ah, oh, that's oh, right. No. Doing better. She's doing better, but it's. Um, yeah, she can't go to school, and her sister's not allowed to go to school until she's better. So. That makes sense. Um, uh, so. Uh, I don't think. Yeah, we didn't have you last week. Judging because of the circumstance. What you been up to? School, 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 school. Um, <laughs> and, and Persona 5, but yeah. Yes. As per usual. How's that going? Yeah. Yes. Currently on February 2nd and having a long heart-to-heart with the school counselor. Oh, fun. Oh, yeah. That's a really good section, I think. Yep. <laughs> That was, that was the section added for Royal that I think did a good job of sort of uh, providing like some sort of commentary on the game's own choices and themes. Yep. I was like, okay, I, I know there's a, a whole section after this massive like skyscraper-sized deity that I have just shot in the face. <laughs> and I'm kind of curious to see how they fit this in. And I'm like, okay, it's Twilight Zone time. Dee, 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 dee. There's, there's some fun stuff there. Yeah. And hey, when was the last time that uh, the Shin Megami Tensei game bothered with Yaldabaoth? When was the first time they bothered with him? I swear that he's in something before Persona 5. I'm trying to remember how to even pronounce it, to spell his name. Uh, it's Y-A-L-D-A. Yeah, yeah, apparently it was in the first Devil Summoner. Although, in that game, he's listed as just Demiurge. I mean, he is a Demiurge. Um, Yeah, like that is, they they are the same thing. Oh, that's right, the Demiurge, you had to explain that to me. Yeah. And I wish I didn't know what it was. Not that complicated. It's not. It's just weird, and I don't like it. <laughs> I just, I just like the idea that the collective apathy of the human race somehow managed to spawn a deity of obedience and subjugation in the middle of Shibuya. <laughs> yeah. And yet I can see it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I was a big fan of how that game concludes in both of its different conclusions. Mm-hmm. So. And again, and again, a deity of subjugation the size of a skyscraper that you shoot through the face. Yeah. yeah. Pretty cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, so glad that that seems to still be going well. <laughs> Uh, Wales, if you talk about Destiny 2, <laughs> I will summon forth a second escaper, scrape a deity, and shoot you in the face. Um, <laughs> uh, the, I'm 
playing <laughs> Dragon Quest Eleven. See, that's a game. Yeah. It's very good. It's still very good on Switch, also. Yeah, that's, I, I would say that's an ideal way to play it, just because it's like, oh, yeah. I can just stop and stop and go on it, and I mean, like, that's the version with the content. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I've not touched the 2D mode in a while, and I don't really plan to, because I kind of think it sucks. I, I think it's lesser. I don't think it sucks, but it is one of those things, like, I would just rather play the 3D mode. It yeah. feels like the game very much designed for the 3D mode. It's cute that it's available, and the general additions made to 11S are nice. So you're still making good on your uh, your resolution. <laughs> yes, I also uh, reloaded my um, dot hex save, made a little progress there. Uh, I plan on this weekend setting aside some time. So I can make my way through some cutscenes and finish up that, that game. Because once I get to part three, I feel I can like, you know, stream it or you know, play it while doing other things. Because mm. I won't be won't won't be like like all important cutscenes that I really need to sit down and watch. I can kind of at least play. until the end. At which point it will right. become all important. Cutscenes. Of course, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and and I think part three is a very satisfying payoff to that storyline. So looking forward to getting to it. Excellent. So yeah, that's it's about me. I will be playing Fire Emblem Engage. Engage. Uh, uh, very I hear it's soon. Good. Yes, and I'm actually kind of happy that the story is apparently just fine. It's, it's a bit less uh, about the drama of the story and a bit more about just arranging your mans and having them fight each other. Yeah, so that <laughs> is great for me right now because it means it's a game I can just uh, tinker around with and not have to be all that invested in. So that's good. I think it's I think it's good for the series that it can sort of uh, swing wildly between like heavy story installments yeah. and more just. Uh, more just fighting installments. It's good to have that. Even if, like, by nature, not everyone's going to be into every swing that it takes, it's good for it to have some internal variety. Yes. Variety, good. People are still swearing up and down that next time, next time will be a remake of Genealogy of the whole Holy War. Next time. <sighs> There's potential for remake. But uh, as long as they keep permadeath as optional, I'm all good. I would be shocked if there's going to be any game going forward that doesn't have an option for non permadeath. Yeah, it's too much of the way that the series broadened its appeal. Uh, let's see. Uh, as for me, uh. Had I finished Dragon Age 2 when we last spoke? I can't remember. Uh, I don't think so. Well, I did that. Um, hello. Uh, hello. Hello, Tim. Uh, I finished Dragon Age 2. 
and I did the two DLCs for it, which are both much higher quality than any of the DLCs that ended up coming out for uh, Dragon Age 1, except for maybe Awakening, but Awakening is... I was, I was talking to a friend who was playing through it, and it's a bucky piece of shit, so... <laughs> You get your ups and downs with that one. It's a very substantial piece of content in terms of it's like 12 hours long, but at the same time, it's like possibly the buggiest thing that Bioware's ever released. So take your ups and downs with that one. Uh, and we're not talking but, about some of the monsters. No. Because let's uh, face it, some of the monsters in Awakening looked like bugs. Yeah, I mean, there's always giant spiders <laughs> in those games as well, but... Yeah, that game, I was, the friend I was talking to mentioned that there were multiple occasions where if they had not pulled out console commands, they would have lost like an hour's worth of progress Yikes. because something just broke. <laughs> so, yeah. not, not the most stable video game. Uh, I, so, when I was uh, let go from Verizon Wireless, um, mm -hmm. this was a game I picked up, and I remember... That February, the following February, we had a very nasty cold spell go through New Mexico. Um, mm -hmm. Like, I'm talking native 40s. Oh. Yeah. yeah, like, it was so bad. Um, yeah, it, it was so bad that the, uh, like, the heat, like, a lot of people lost their heat. Mm -hmm. So, my wife and I spent a week playing this on our PS3. And I was playing it during the day. She oh, was playing it at the night. the buggiest version. <laughs> yeah, she was playing it at night. And the only reason we... And, and we went like a full week of just, you know, one would save and go to sleep. And then the other would wake, you know, go to sleep. You know, we just... I would play all day. Tag team in that thing. <laughs> and she would play all night while I slept. And um, the only reason we were able to play that long was because of how cold it was, and we had a fan blowing on the PS3. Wow. <laughs> to keep the system sign. cool. Not a great sign. Not a great sign. No, no. Uh, we, we came to the realization, especially after, like, the Mass Effect ports, that Bioware did not ever engineer these for console releases. They they geared them for the PC release and just left it and basically just straight ported it. Oh, wow. The Mass Effect game for console first, but yeah. Uh... Well, no, remember, it was not console first for PlayStation. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, the, there's, there's a distinction here. The, like, Mass Effect games were definitely produced for 360 and then ported to other things. Yeah, but uh, it, was console... ported to, it was ported to PlayStation much, much later. Yeah, but yeah. that's how we got uh, through basically any Bioware game on uh, PlayStation was we we'd set up a fan to blow on the Playstations just to keep them cool enough to where the games would not crash. Yeah, the, the console ports of Dragon Age Origins were also partially farmed out to another company called Edge of Reality, which is uh, part of why the uh, why Origins is has, has an entirely different interface on console, but also uh, definitely is a little bit weird on it. And uh, Dragon Age 2 was definitely a game where internally Bioware was much more concerned about the console version. That one uh, 
was made internally at Bioware, and it was uh, very, very much engineered to be more of a console game. Uh, There's, they but, were still way over-engineered for consoles. Uh, Even though I they mean, were better engineered, they still really pushed those systems hard. I mean, that's, that's more to do with the fact that the technology was kind of ancient by the time it actually came out. The, the Eclipse engine that Dragon Age 1 and 2 run on was started development in like 2002. It was, they were kind of creaky. Um, but, uh, I'm trying to think of... I think that's what they were. I think it was called for Eclipse. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, the Eclipse engine that Dragon Age 1 and 2 run on was only ever used for those two games because by the time Dragon Age 2 came out, it was considered to be too dated to keep making games for. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I skipped Awakening. I did the DLC for 2. Uh, the the two DLCs are generally really strong for Dragon Age 2, although there are some missteps with the uh, Mark of the Assassin DLC. Uh, mostly, it hinges too much on you caring about the new character. And it's very easy to not terribly care about the new character. But uh, it's, it's still decent. Honestly, more, if not even so much her as a character, if it's more if you're a big fan of Felicia Day or not. Yeah, I wasn't going to go too much into that, but yeah, like, they, they very much were, it was built around the fact that, like, they had uh, gotten either an edict or just an offer to have her in the game, so. Well, I think some DLCs. of it was kind of snubbing at a Bethesda, because Bethesda put them in one of the fall games, and, like, her character was an absolute crap. I mean, that's, that's I as much Bethesda's fault as anything, but... Uh... No, that like they gave her really bad stats in whichever Fallout game they put her character in. They actually like gave her like negative strength or something, like really, really bad stats. That's just she weird. Died in, like one hit. Yeah, no, it was it was it's it's documented somewhere, and I forget where I saw it, but a lot of people were commenting about it. Yeah, but it's one of those things. Like I don't know how the collaboration came to be, but the the. The DLC really hinges on you finding her or her character particularly interesting, and yeah, if if you're not like if you if you're not huge into it, there's still some there's still a lot of fairly interesting content in there. And then uh, the Legacy DLC, which kind of uh, sets up uh, Dragon Age Inquisition, uh, it is pretty strong throughout. It's a good dungeon crawl. It's got a nice uh, new uh, environment tile set, which is one of the things that Dragon Age 2 in general was just kind of missing. It doesn't have a lot of environment assets. Uh, and it's, it's a pretty interesting uh, little dungeon crawl that has some good new dialogue and uh, it's, it's just a pretty strong DLC that I'm just glad to go through again. Um, as for... Uh, so after that, I just decided to keep on trucking and rolled straight in an Inquisition game that uh, it was weird to realize that my 
saves from had been uploaded to the cloud at some point, and then the new Xbox just immediately found and downloaded them. <laughs> and then I looked at them. They were uh, I had put like 30 hours into the game. I was like level 12, which uh, you know, not not uh, end game level, but pretty pretty far into when that where that game's level cap actually goes. I forget what the actual. There's, there's like a soft level cap, but I'm not sure what it is. But the point is, uh, I had played a fair bit of the game, and I had made uh, very poor decisions about how to optimize that time. Uh, <laughs> let's see what the... I need to check what the Inquisition soft level cap is, just so I can get some perspective. Uh, but... Yeah, it, it's the soft cap is around level twenty six or twenty seven, so getting to level twelve is not nothing. Uh, but yeah, um, so uh, but I had somehow done that uh, just by wandering around the. Uh, essentially the first couple areas, the hinterlands, the storm coast, uh, without ever reaching uh, Skyhold, which is the uh, the first, which is the real hub of the game that you do most of the story missions from. Uh, because the way that the opening of the game is set up is uh, quite poor. Um, it sort of drops you it has a pretty cool prologue where you uh, where you have like a big battle going on around you as you fight your way up a mountain. And then uh, it just sort of drops you in this area called literally the Hinterlands. And there is just a lot of stuff to do there and very little uh, guidance on how to prioritize your time. Uh, and... This, I think I've mentioned, this is something that uh, they became aware was a problem when people started, when they started getting like data about how people were playing the game once it was released. Because basically, uh, the Hinterlands is full of stuff, but not a lot of stuff that players were expected to care about. So the expectation was the players would do. A handful of quests get there, get used to how the game functioned, uh, learn how the mechanics worked, generally got used to exploring in it, and then they would move on. They would go on to do, uh, they would get enough uh, power and influence to start the story quests, and the story quests would funnel them to more interesting content. But And this uh, happened. Yeah, like basically, uh, Partially because of how people tend to approach games, partially of how people tend to use specifically where like prior Bioware games have sort of trained you that like if there's a side quest, it's probably worth doing. It'll get you something. But the hinterlands are is just full of stuff. There's a lot of stuff in the hinterlands that doesn't really matter and you aren't supposed to do all at once. If you feel like you need to, you can come back and do more of it, but you aren't supposed to do it all at once. There's not, re it's a lot of uh, very just kind of there content. It exists to fill out a very large map. Uh, and 
if, if, I'm not sure what exactly they did, but it's been a, I, I know that at some point they patched the game to try to get you to leave the hinterlands. I think what they basically did was that they just patched in party banter where they would, if you were around the hinterlands long enough, they would start asking you, hey, do you want to go somewhere else? <laughs> <laughs> like it, it, it because it was, it was a problem because it's just like there's a lot of stuff here people get stuck here they and usually if they get stuck here they stop playing because they spend a lot of time doing playing a game in a way that will not be fun because they assume that it's like intended or optimal that they do all of this shit and uh, that's that's basically what happened to me I got I spent you know a few dozen hours in the hinterlands thinking, well, I gotta get all this stuff done. There's still tons of just stuff on the map. I need to go back uh, and do all this. And this time, I just tried to approach the game in a healthier fashion. I played until I didn't feel like doing anything more there for a while. And went and unlocked better maps. And maps that have actual quests in them. <laughs> uh, the uh, the Hinterlands give way to the last uh, part of the story that I know I had done with my first attempt, which was uh, you get a choice between who's going to be sort of the uh, a, a linchpin of the Inquisition's army. Is it going to be the rebelling mages, uh, or will it be the uh, Templars? And... The, uh, I went with the rebelling mages because I, you know, that's my personal belief, whatever. But uh, that uh, brings you to a quest. Uh, like you have, the, they're completely mutually exclusive uh, quests. Uh, I don't know much about what uh, the Templar mission is because I, the first time I did the same thing, because I was just what my where my philosophy is going to take me inevitably unless some outside force force causes me to choose different but uh yeah the the mages do a quest called uh i think in hushed whisper whispers uh which is uh it, it's an interesting one you run into like uh you run into like a super powerful mage from the this northern country called the Teventer Imperium who uh, who basically uh, is the, the thing about the Imperium is that it's full of mages that just sort of do things because they can uh, <laughs> and in this particular case it's someone who has uh, started uh, fucking with the fabric of time so you confront him and uh, he sends you and the character who brings you the mission, the new your mage party member Dorian. Uh, he sends you through a rift in time uh, a year forward, uh, and you see whatever party members he brought along with you as like these horrible uh, half uh, half dead, uh, like. <laughs> It's, it's experimented upon uh, husks just sort of uh, basically agreeing to help you because uh, best case scenario you go back in time and stop from happening worst case scenario you fuck up the guy that uh, 
spent a year trying to grow rocks out of them. But uh, that's a pretty that's a that's a strong quest with a strong hook. Uh, and it looks like the Templar mission, Champion of the Just, is very very different. So I mean, it's, there's at least some uh, interesting. Uh, what what what's the what what are we talking about? Sorry, I had to make some calls. Just just talking about Dragon Age Inquisition. I'm still going on. Oh okay. Okay. Uh, I didn't play. I I I didn't even get through. No, I got through the opening of Inquisition. That's mm -hmm. as far as I got. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. yeah but, he's, he's in his groove. It'll be another ten to fifteen minutes before we switch topics. So let's just keep going. Yeah. My apologies. Doomering. Uh, uh, a question for us when we get to it. What's got a question? What? Doomering has a question for us. Ah, gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, I'll, I'll try to speak this long. But yeah, uh, like uh, In Hush Whispers, Strong Quest uh, generally shows off, like it, it basically shows off everything that is missing from uh, wandering around and doing nothing in the hinterlands. Uh, so, you know, that. that after you know spending a while doing again kind of nothing uh it's, it's a good breath of fresh air but after that point if you just choose to keep doing the story which if you spend a significant amount of time in the time in the hinterlands both is what you can do and what you the game is hoping you'll do uh it, it generally it picks up in terms of pacing the uh, game starts encouraging you to go to more environments that have uh more actual design and story and are generally a lot smaller thank heavens uh the uh one, one of the things that's very uh conspicuous when you uh try to play the game in the stupid way that i tried to play it the first time is that party members just don't have a lot of things to say because the game expects you to move on from your initial home base to Skyhold, the main home base, fairly early on, they have a lot of dialogue that only plays in Skyhold because there's cutscenes that are done that rely on props that exist within that area that rely on that environment. So, uh, you assaulted me with goats. That that does happen, but uh, I, I'm sorry. I want, my wife actually played through the entire Inquisition, so I have seen bits and pieces here and that is the one thing i will always remember is you assaulted me with ghosts yeah yeah there's a there's a side quest that uh, happens when you do an area called the Fallowmire, where a bunch of uh barbarian tribes the avar uh one of their uh chief's sons decides that he's going to try to make himself seem more impressive by uh, attacking the Inquisition. You kill the Avar chief's son. The Avar chief is not actually sad that his son's dead because his son was very stupid. But <laughs> it is like the, the custom of his people that he has to do something. So he like castles they have to, to go to Skyhold. With everything they own. <laughs> yeah, so the, the Avar chief uh, flames a goat at Skyhold. But, uh... Goats. Because you see one actually hitting the wall, and you see another one already there just grazing. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, in any case... <laughs> just this thing, I love that scene. 
but yeah, in any case, that, that's a good scene also because uh, it inter it helps introduce. Uh, it's one of the first of what the game calls judgments, where because you're essentially a de facto ruler of a fiefdom in Skyhold, you're given uh, prerogative to make decisions about what to do with prisoners of war, basically. Uh, so if you do in Hush Whispers, the first judgment you'll have to make is against the mage who flung you through a time hole. Uh, and... Uh, what, what you choose to do with him uh, can have a lot of different effects. The first thing it'll do is your party is going to all have opinions about what's, what you do with them. So uh, if uh, what, what I ended up doing was basically uh, saying that I wouldn't kill him, but he was going to be forced to uh, do magical research for the Inquisition, that he would be kept on a fairly tight leash while doing that. A uh, bunch of the bunch of my party members generally approve. They don't like you putting people to death if you can help it. Uh, a lot of them are just generally against imprisonment as a concept. So uh, certain characters will uh, generally be against that. Uh, but it also means that you're essentially saying this apostate mage, who you know is part of an enemy territory, can just sort of continue to work on things that he cares about. So. You have some people to disapprove of that. Uh, the the Avar chief uh, is a much easier one to do. There is a choice with him that gets you basically all kinds of, uh, every kind of benefit you could want. Every character approves of it at least a little bit. Some of them approve it a lot. And uh, it's also kind of a funny thing to actually do and makes him an agent of the Inquisition. But basically, one of your options is to, uh, with the Avar chief, is... Uh, instead of killing him or imprisoning him, you can uh, exile him up to the Tevinter Imperium, the uh, place with all the evil mages. And basically, you tell him, you're exiled along with your group, but also here's a bunch of weapons. And so you basically <laughs> just send him north to go fuck shit up as much as he can manage, which is something that everyone in the party approves of. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I was reading about some of the judgments you can render, and uh, it accidentally I accidentally sold myself on one of the DLCs because the Jaws of Hack on DLC has a point where you are forced to pass judgment on a bear, <laughs> a semi-trained bear. Huh. Uh, a bear. And yeah, just just a semi-trained bear that left its post. And how do you bear uh, making this decision? So you can't do anything to hurt the bear. The game did not want to give you the option uh, to yeah. just ha uh, no commit animal cruelty. Go fuck yourself. Um, but in any case, uh, you have the options to... Some of these are very good. You can uh, refuse it treats for an entire week. You can <laughs> force one of its caretakers to sit there and explain what it did wrong to it in English for a solid week. <laughs> Uh, you can uh, conscript it to the Inquisition somehow. Don't know how that works. And um, the game won't actually let you do this. You can say it's what you want to do, and if you try to do it, like the person who offered, uh, who asked you to pass judgment on the bear, will just essentially say that that's nonsense and won't let you try it. Uh, but if you are a mage inquisitor, you have the option of attempting to invoke the right of tranquility on it. 
And for those not versed in Dragon Age lore, the Rite of Tranquility is where someone is uh, cut off from the world of spirits and dreams and basically magically lobotomized. Uh, it's only supposed to be possible to do on mages. It's not clear what your mage inquisitor was thinking was going to happen if it was attempted upon a bear. Uh, it, it raises a lot of questions. <laughs> but yeah, I, I kind of have to play that DLC now because I want to I have to get an agent of the Inquisition that is just a bear. Yeah, that sounds pretty amazing. But yeah, the in general, I think that you you really do the game really does improve a lot once you get past the urge to just do stuff in the hinterlands because like there's a lot of like I said, sort of nothing content in the hinterlands that's just not worth doing. Uh, or at least not like it's something that like I can enjoy doing, but only in the context of like I'm winding down at the end of the day. I don't feel like doing something as strenuous as advancing the story, but I can still do stuff that will get me things. Uh, and uh, the hinterlands is full of that. But there, there, there's some stuff that I I do appreciate about what the game is doing uh, in general. There's there seems like there was a much greater attempt to make it so that uh, things that sway quests and party members are less in the realm of dialogue. I don't think it works perfectly. There's definitely uh, nearly every party member has one quest that gets some approval that it's just go out and essentially collect a certain type, type of thing or break something. And I, I get why that's there. It fills out the world. It gives you a way to get people on your side who may have large disagreements with your philosophy. But it, And it's them trying to make it so that it's not just dialogue that governs that. But at the same time, it's, you know, they're, they're kind of, as mentioned, sort of nothing quests. Um, luckily, none of them are as spread out as some of the stuff in the aforesaid hinterlands. A lot of them are in, like, you're just going to find them on the way to doing other things, so it doesn't matter. Uh, but, you know, there, there's some interesting stuff. Uh, I've, I've liked the cast more as I've tried playing it this time. Uh, particularly, uh, I, it, they, they walk an interesting line with returning character Varric from uh, Dragon Age 2. Because in Dragon Age 2, Varric is designed to essentially, no matter what you do, he will always be Hawk's best friend. You would have to fight very hard. Uh, like, it's very hard to get him into the game's rivalry state rather than friendship state. And either, even if he's a rival, it's mostly just like, a, like that friend you talk to that never stops giving you shit. Uh... So it's one of those things where, like, Varric, Varric is Hawk's best friend. Like, that is inescapable. And in Inquisition, they've walked an interesting line because you can still very much get close to Varric. But Varric is very much an ally of the Inquisition who happens to get along with you fairly well. And eventually the game does bring in Hawk from Dragon Age 2, and it becomes very clear that, uh, you know, he, he believes in what the Inquisition stands for. He's happy to work with you but you're not his friend the way Hawk is. <laughs> so it's kind of an interesting line to walk for a character that's supposed to be uh, written that way. It's it's, it's interesting. Uh, also, it's very interesting that they, uh, when they bring in Hawk, because the game suddenly gives you a dialogue, uh, a, a set of options in the dialogue that's basically, uh, 
Hawk looks like the default Hawk that was available in Dragon Age 2, or customized Hawk, which then thrusts you into a character creator screen in the middle of the game. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't really have a lot of options. There was no direct saving part from Dragon Age 2. There was no way to read what your Hawk looked like, so they just sort of had to have a... uh, They just sort of had to have a a a character creator to just let you say this is what Hawk looked like but uh, it's it's interesting it's uh, like I said I don't think it all works but I'm much softer on it than I once was Uh, I've been enjoying it there's some good banter some interesting characters Uh, uh, good to see Varric back he's still strong uh the uh, person who was interrogating him as the frame narrative for Dragon Age 2, Cassandra, is, is kind of fun as like your, uh, as kind of the hard ass of the group, but that uh, eventually, if you get to know her well enough, even though she like routinely abuses Varric, it turns out that she's a huge fan of his books. Uh, and try, there's like one particular series that she wants the next one of. Uh, but doesn't know when it's coming. So, like the first, the thing that she tells you to do is that you need to use your political power as the Inquisitor to force Beric to finish that series, <laughs> which is is pretty good. And then when you uh, when you actually go up to talk to Beric, if you're friendly with him, he'll say, "Yeah, sure, I'll do it." Uh, I mean that like that series, I wasn't going to bother finishing because it it basically barely breaks even but i'll do it as long as i get to be there when you and like needle her when you hand her the finished copy of the book <laughs> and there's a there's a very good scene where you're just handing her a copy of the book and she doesn't want to admit she wants to read it because Varric is there and she's embarrassed so uh you know it's, it's a good scene it's very funny uh there's there's, there's a lot of good little scenes like that but uh, I didn't get to see the first time that I was playing it because they can't play unless you've gotten the skyhold. And I was like, no, I need to do all this stuff. So, yeah, it's it's a good game, but you kind of have to have like a very uh, you you have to very much discipline how you're going to play it uh, for the first uh, handful of hours. Uh, I think that it's very possible to be done if you really just uh, blaze through it. You could probably be done with the compulsory time in the hinterlands in like four hours but uh you know i I was still relatively thorough i got to i got to like level seven or eight uh this time and that involved playing for like 10 hours there and i mean that's probably more than anyone needs but it's it's fine it it was not enough to dissuade me away from the game and i'm having a lot more fun with it this time so that's been that's been okay um Let's see. But yeah, that's that's kind of been eating my time because work has been very tiring the past few days, so I don't have time to think about more than one video game. Okay, what was, we wanted to hit Doomerang's questions before it gets big lost to the yes. ether. Uh, first, do you guys have any history with the EDF or Defense Force games? Yes. Not really, no. Only uh, from watching Phil and my friend Rosar play them. 
They're 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 pretty fun as multiplayer sort of loot based uh, mission based games go. They're uh, I remember reading about the first, the second Earth Defense Force game back when they were simple two thousand games on the PS two. Uh, in the early aughts and being interested in it because it was just a game about like 50s uh, sci-fi uh, stupid things invading and blowing up everything uh, and uh, then being very enthused to pick up Earth Defense Force 2017, the distant future year uh, <laughs> back in uh, 2007 or so when it came out on the 360 because that was the first time we got one in the uh, in the U.S., uh, I believe they had been released previously in PAL territories, like Global Defense Force, Earth Defense Force 2. That game would eventually be remade and re-released as Earth Defense Force uh, Invaders from Planet Space. From Planet Space? Uh, yeah. Okay. It's, it's, exactly, it's exactly the kind of title the game should have. Yeah, um, but yeah, uh, but yeah, I've been a casual fan since then. Like, I don't play them. I I have a friend who plays all of them and plays them very thoroughly, like highest level, uh, like getting all of the best loot because that's the kind of person they are. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of them as just like a low impact uh, they're very good co-op games I feel like me and Wheels could probably have a good time uh, fucking around with them yeah we should do that uh, Sunday night shenanigans sometime yeah it would be a good shenanigans uh, yeah, like even I'm interested in them but uh, the, one re the one thing that steers me away is giant bugs because I do not like bugs on the bright side they do explode a lot um, but yeah I understand uh, but yeah, Earth Defense Force. Uh, I'm a fan. It's it's fun. I wish that uh, the developer Sandlot used to make some other weird ass games. But I wish that they would make at least one more of. Uh, people who played a lot of weird early PS2 games may remember Robot Alchemic Drive, the sequel to weird PS1 game Remote Control Dandy. Uh, but those were both games about. Uh, they were sort of spiritually uh, influenced by things like Tetsujin 28 or Giant Robo, like these these real old uh, giant robot shows about someone who controls a giant robot with a remote control. And so the gimmick of Remote Control Dandy and Robot Outcome kind of Drive was that you were uh, that you controlled the robot with the remote control, but you were also controlling the character who had the remote control. So you had to actually occasionally switch perspectives between the person with the remote control and the robot so that you could move yourself into a position where you could both see what you were fighting and what you were doing while not being close enough to get yourself killed in the carnage. Uh, <laughs> and like, that was, a, that was actually a really neat gimmick. Uh, they're, they're robot alchemic drivers, I think, quite rare at this point, but as, as PS2 games go, it's, it's really neat. It's worth going back for. Uh, and I think the last thing they did in that style was actually a licensed game based off of the 2004 remake of Tetsujin 28, uh, which is actually a very good remake, actually. Uh, directed by Yasuhiro Imagawa, who did a lot of very good... Uh, 90s and aughts animes, uh, 
perhaps uh, it, people who watched a lot of anime at that time might remember him for uh, he was the series director on Mobile Fighter G Gundam and the uh, mastermind behind the very lavishly produced 90s OVA series Giant Robo the Day the Earth Stood Still. Uh, yeah, I, I wish Sandlot got to make more things uh, in addition to Earth Defense Force, but I'll never begrudge them making Earth Defense Force. It's a lot of fun. Uh, the day. I swear they made something else, but those are the things that I cared about. <laughs> But yeah. Um, were there any further questions in the chat? Or should we? Yes. Uh, are the games like Rise of the Third Power and Chained Echoes changing perceptions of RPGs at all? They are for me. I think that they they may be. You know, the, the most you're going to see for that is that like they they're very uh, popular within uh, RPG fan subcircles. So. Among among RPG fans, they can you know broaden horizons, but I don't know that they are necessarily changing the broader perceptions of the genre. I I think they are changing broader perceptions in regards to what indie games can do. Well, Unchained Echo or Chained Echoes, yeah. Uh, Rise, I wouldn't really call an indie game. But... Well, the, the, he said Rise of Third Power too. I don't know what that is. It's another. It's another indie RPG that has got. Oh, I was assuming high. that they were just talking about Atlas Horizon. I was like, what? <laughs> no. Yeah. So. Okay. So no, I, I think they are. They are changing perceptions on like how complex and how big indie RPGs can be, and um, and we're we're really starting to see a lot more high quality indie RPGs coming out from a lot of different people. Not not just like Zabod and so forth but you know all these other studios too and i'm not and i'm definitely not talking chemco which is just shovelware for mediocre rpgs which still can be fun um, yeah i know Paul i wouldn't and I call those indie play, rpgs but... they're just low budget <laughs> yeah they're they're rp there but um yeah change and we'll definitely see with um oh sea of stars that's supposed to come out this year we also have the 8-bit adventure 2 which is a follow-up to 8-bit adventure which very interesting uh, RPG. I played a bit of it. I won't, I won't need to play more, but I'm just I'm not good at that one. Um, but yeah, no, it's there's definitely a lot more perceptions being changed in the broader sense of the RPG community from, you know, what an indie RPG can do and what it can't do compared to just even a few years ago where most of them were just crap. <laughs> I'd say they were crap, but I would say that. At the t for, for a very long time, I feel Underwhelming? like... I wouldn't go with that either, because that would imply I had stronger uh, assumptions about them. The thing I was going to go with is that uh, for a long time, it feels like a the majority of indie RPGs that got any sort of press were, or like mainstream pickup were RPGs that very much were obviously inspired by a, one or two specific games. And uh, they were they were kind of lost in that imitation. Like people, when when you played them, you sort of felt like, oh, I see what you were a huge fan of, and you're not quite as good as it. Or sometimes you were very much nowhere near as good. Mm -hmm. uh, and that that definitely hurt their capacity to 
build their own fan bases. And I feel like uh, over the past few years, the indie RPG space has gotten a bit better at uh, creating something that feels like it takes inspiration from old things without being beholden to imitation of old things. Uh, and that we're starting to see the fruits of that. Uh, maybe that's, that's maybe that's just me. That's what um, I'm at from. I mean, like things like Chained Echoes, and you know, there's a lot of absolutely fantastic indie RPGs, but I still feel like a lot of them people get like googly-eyed over, and they are not quite as good as people seem to think they are i mean that, that's kind of the, just the end point of a lot of indie games develop their initial reputation because the uh they develop their initial reputation because the initial audience does not have a lot of expectations for them and they end up vastly out like you'll get a good one that vastly outperforms your modest expectations yeah and then people start evangelizing it like this was incredible i had such a great time with it and then inevitably that makes it impossible to recreate the experience that caused people to fall in love with them you get this inflated sense of expectations about what it's going to do and then it's like oh this was just a well put together rpg so uh, that's a cycle of uh the, yeah. the inevitable cycle of indie i definitely saw saw it happen with undertale as well when that came out uh, let's see what else do I said in that I'd rather play these types of games than Final Fantasy at this point. I mean, it sounds like you want games that play like older Final Fantasy, which is fine. You know, it's it's fine if Final Fantasy isn't for you anymore. It's 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 okay. I think it's I think it's healthy to I think I think there's a few things that are healthy about this. One is that of course the industry has reached a point where it's possible to have both of these things yes. if you don't want to play one you have still have plenty of options among the other and hopefully the genre continues to be able to have be a healthy enough market space that there's all sorts of rpgs that allow you to just ignore the ones you don't care about uh i mean like i'm enough beholden to caring about like what what the big budget space in the industry uh, is trying to sell itself on, I'll probably never stop at least keeping track of what the new, say, Final Fantasy or uh, Bioware game, CD Projekt game, uh, Dragon Quest game. I'll probably always want to keep track of those, even if it's just, even if the individual game doesn't interest me, because I'm interested in what the what they think. Uh, is like where the industry is going and where it's been, but you know it's it's one of those things like you don't have to, and that's that's it's, we're all better off for that. Like people, one of the worst thing, one of the things that makes people get so disenchanted is like this feeling that they have to play things that they honestly should stop because they don't care. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, and I think that we're we're reaching a point where bandwagon. Yeah, a bit of bandwagon and a bit of like you know you look far enough back and it's like I don't particularly care for this but there are no other examples of this genre happening right now yeah uh, Doomerang has 
It says something similar to that here. I think the high quality indie RPGs are creating their own niche, just like how they made a huge 2D community in recent years, 2D platforming, Metrovania. I mean, exactly, because that was serving a type of game. Serving a type of game that people cared about yeah. but couldn't get from big budget. And... Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. And, yeah, no, that's certainly true, although the best. 2D platformer or Metroidvania I've played in recent years is a big budget one. So, you thinking of Metroid Dread? Yes, sir. <laughs> it's my favorite too. So fair. Yeah. But yeah, it is one of those things though that like uh, the surge of uh, like the clearer surge of interest will sometimes help some of these genres come back as well. I think yeah. Metroid Dread probably would have happened either way, just because. Sakamoto uh, has has enough pull in Nintendo and clearly wanted it made, but at the same time, like the the resurgence of certain elements is you know partially comes from publishers observing what manages to become popular despite having a marketing budget of basically nothing. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, hey, Budai. Yeah, we we saw your questions on the site. We're gonna get to those soon. Yeah, we're just making sure that we hit the ones in the comments, uh, in the stream comments first. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, is that all the ones in the stream comments thus far? Uh, Budai did just throw in an extra one here. He said, without having played it, what is your initial impression of First Spoken from the pre-release info? I mean, I played the demo. Uh, so I don't know if that counts. Yeah, I did not, uh, and because I don't. Yeah, that, that kind of wraps, <laughs> wraps that up. Uh, my, my, my response would be that it feels like a very confused product based on what I played at the demo. Uh, and uh, I'm sad to make this guess, but I think it's probably going to underperform and probably a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. Uh, which demo? For, For Spoken. Okay. Oh. I've, I mean, I've I've heard very mixed things. There are some people who really loved what they played of the demo, and there's people like David who are just like, I don't think it's going to be that good. Be honest, yeah, I haven't heard anyone talking about it. <laughs> I've, I've heard, when it first came out, I definitely saw people who kind of liked parts of it. But I do think that the general agreement is the the less the characters talked, the better it worked out. <laughs> That's uh, not a good sign. And you can tell so that they knew this was... That if they have Japanese audio switched to it. I don't think that's going to help. I think the writing is fundamentally flawed. Um, Oof. Uh, like, they're, they're just... Bad whoever's reviewing it. The, the answer would... You can tell that they knew there was some sort of problem, but it was probably too late in the day to actually fix it, because there was... I believe there is a slider in the options menu to just make the characters talk to each other less. Like when you're just off doing things, like they're supposed to banter each other to fill to fill time and fill uh, the you know to to make it less uh, yeah. tedious to just run around. But yeah, it's you know, like what the, what um, um, Gearbox did with um, uh, Poker Night at the Inventory, where you could have like no talking or a lot of talking. Yeah, that, that wasn't Gearbox, but uh, yeah, I got you. But yeah. Uh, but 
uh, in general, like, yeah, it's one of those. Oh, that was Valve. Yeah, sorry, sorry. No, no, it was Telltale. Um, yeah, wasn't that like their first game? It wasn't their first game. It was one of their first few games. When they, yeah, after they made the first Sam and Max. What's that? Yeah, they're both delisted. They both are, both because Telltale no longer exists and because they were the product of a multitude of uh, licensing agreements that have since expired. But, uh, yeah. Uh, it's it's one of those things like there's a lot of like little things that imply a pro that to me imply a project that maybe needed a stronger core thesis of what it was. Uh, it, it feels very uh, ju just from the demo. It feels very much like a game where they sort of looked at what the trends in design were when they started development likely in about 2016 or 2017 and they just sort of followed those uh to their logical conclusion without a lot of strong ideas of what the game that they were producing was going to have as like a driving concept or like a core gameplay element. There's some interesting theoretically ideas around traversal, but in the actual scheme of how to actually control them, at least as presented in the demo, they don't work very well. They're just kind of eh. And that's that's ultimately how I felt playing the demo. Like I didn't hate what I okay. I wouldn't I don't want to be too strong in either direction. I did not hate what I played. I did not feel very strongly about it. And honestly, that's maybe worse. <laughs> yeah, um, especially for something that's labeled as a at least double A or triple A game. That's definitely you know. a triple A game. It was made by the FF15 team without their head. Like basically, uh, after FF15 came out, uh, Hajime Tabata was essentially put in charge of that studio. And then about nine months later, he left. Uh, that's about where I would expect that like some sort of decision was being made about a project that he wanted made that was... Uh, that would have been probably around when they were deciding whether it was going to go into full production or if they were going to stop at that point. And it sounds like the answer is they chose to stop at that point. And what they ended up making was bespoken. But it, it feels like something that uh doesn't feel like it had a very strong direction behind it and it doesn't like there's a lot of uh what feels like in within the writing based on just what i've experienced it feels like there's a lot of choices that were made because this kind of bantery dialogue was very much the thing to do in the mid tens, and now it's starting to sound and feel dated uh and you know you're just kind of seeing that overall I, I i'm sure it'll sell i don't think it will sell enough that we're going to be seeing a bunch of forespoken sequels that would be my guess yeah it sounds almost kind of like uh, what happened with uh gotham knights uh, as one person i saw review it was commenting that this feels like it should have been a live service game and they they realized that oh, no one likes all these live service games. So they kept a lot of the systems that were supposed to be live service in there, but then retooled them so they weren't live service. Yeah, you're seeing that a lot. Like, like that's an ongoing problem that you see with a lot of, as the cost and time to produce on AAA games gets longer, 
you have a, a game that tries to follow the trends of what's popular when it's starting will be hopelessly dated by the time that it's finished. And when Gotham Knights would have started its development, it sure would have sounded like, you know, like we're, we're in the middle of like Destiny 1 to de like Destiny 2's early uh, life cycle. Uh, we're seeing just a lot of the uh, increase of live service elements in things that people did not traditionally think of as live service games. Uh, like they're encroaching outside of the sort of MMO space and into other kinds of games. So at that point, you see a lot of companies start incorporating those elements into things that probably aren't helped by having them. And yeah, uh, I don't, yeah, I would say Forspoken strikes me as the game that you make in the mid tens or in the mid to late tens when you're seeing things like uh, the reinvention of Assassin's Creed and The Witcher 3 and that sort of thing. What you make when you see those becoming popular and you're not super clear on why. That's, that's what it feels like when I play uh, that demo. And there's some other things about it that just like are bothersome in weird ways that are just like, oh, someone should have stepped in and said that this is too intricate in a way that is distracting. Uh, particularly, there's like a weird fisheye filter on the menu that's uh, supposed to like be reminiscent of like a crystal ball, looking into a crystal ball or something, but it makes anything that you're not directly looking at in the menu just really hard to parse. So it actually makes the menu navigation harder. Uh, and you know, just just weird things like that, where someone in someone higher up in the chain should have looked at that and said, like, no, that that can't be how the game ships. Uh, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll see how that turns out. But yeah, uh, the Magic Eight Ball says outlook not so good. Uh, any more in the comments? Uh, from Budai, how much clout do major review sites have in a game's success? I mean, they're they're a part of the marketing plan. Like, not not in the sense of oh, they're getting paid too. It's just like you give. It, like it's it's as old as like review outlets for games you give coverage to people that you think will give you positive coverage uh i think the bigger issue now is just that there are not a lot of big review sites that can be used as part of the marketing plan at this stage yeah and the day we record this like GameSpot and giant bomb just both had like huge layoffs there's mm. basically one major english review website at the stage and it's ign and some of that just has to do with the advent of you know people moving platforms too to you know you have you know people who can do quick reviews on TikTok. you have people who you know just random people who do their own reviews off of youtube not attached to anybody i mean so there's a lot more voices out there than there used to be so a lot of these big publications are letting their people go because they can't keep them paid because you know the, the there's been a big shift on who you know the access to being able to Influence, do a review as well as the access to yeah, Sorry, I, was... I just said influencers 
yeah. yeah I mean, and... The advent of the influencers has negated much of the reviewers. Now, in the case of RP Gamer, we're not paid. Yeah. But yeah. So, okay. so this this is all free time for us. So you know, this is us doing it out of a passion and a love. So not a passion, not a pocket. We but... do bad. But yeah, uh, to look at uh, the the other thing I would say about this, and like I would say that uh, the, the cannier companies are turning uh, the streamer part of the influencer subculture into a into their new marketing plan. Like you, and you know that's you know that's limited in how much you can do. The because you know you I I know that at least a fair few uh, influencers do get sponsored to play things, and that suddenly makes their time very expensive but you know if you can get it gets your games and game in front of thousands if you know, hundreds tens of thousands of uh eyes you know that's that's a lot of capacity to uh get people to care about a game so yeah and, th and there are some companies who are like even happy with like the 10 you know a streamer who just has like 10 to 30 viewers a day hmm Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you see that all across this sort of spectrum of, uh, you know, di different companies will want, and different, even individuals in the case of indie games, will want different uh, things, but, you know, it, it allows them to, uh, you can sort of shop your game around the uh, kind of streamer or uh, influencer that has the right audience for who you're trying to set your game to, so... The big sites less uh, are less part of the marketing plan than they once were, but that's mostly just means that they've sort of trickled out and funneled down into uh, just an, an 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 unending stream of smaller uh, smaller uh, influencers and uh, YouTubers and all that. Yeah, it also doesn't help when when some of the uh, bigger ones when you read their writing and you can clearly see they're slanting it towards one political idea or another, which I have seen mm -hmm. on a, on a fair few articles where you can see they're definitely leaning into one side or another of a particular political spectrum. And, you know, just don't, don't do that. You know, reviewers people... are going to write what they think. Like, I don't like, if you know, if you can tell where they're coming from, I don't personally see it as a problem. It's just I'm probably not going to care if I disagree with you, but that's, you know, I don't really blame them for like, your reviews, well, your opinion. Well, it's, it's again, it's not so much stating the opinion about the game, but when No, you're... I know what you're talking about, and I'm okay. just saying I disagree. <laughs> okay. And we're allowed to disagree. Uh, yeah. Uh... That's why yeah, I had so uh, many Destiny haters on this show. I think you might let essentially only Destiny haters on the show at the stage. That's probably true. <laughs> I guess to... I guess Gaijin would be more Destiny ambivalent, but I'd say we haven't had Silicon in a while, so yes, that is very true. It's been forever. Yeah. Uh, I'm doing this from my phone, so I, I don't know if you're actually playing Destiny right now or not. Oh sure, yeah. I just yes. uh, I intended we... to play Dragon Quest, but I haven't gotten to it yet. I hate you so much. Okay. Uh, anything else in the comments? Uh, 
Forspoken is also the most expensive game I've ever seen. It does not include some kind of season pass. Yeah, I don't know what's going on with that. I assume that there's some sort of nascent DLC plan that they haven't yet put cash behind on the basis of we don't know if the base game will sell. Uh, but I guess we'll see. I mean, yeah, this, this, can I just say I'm sick of de- I'm sick of discourse on DLC and season passes. How do you feel about the discourse on battle passes, though? I'm also <laughs> sick of that. Just don't buy it and shut the fuck up, please. Please, and thank you. Dr. Angry. Okay. Uh, you know, my, my take is if you, if you enjoy it, you know, if you want to put the money in, that's up to you. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Uh, and that, that should be the end of it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit some of these in the comments section before I forget. Um, these are all from Budites. Thank you again for asking these. Uh, did the NES have a two problem? How many part twos on the NES were considered odd or not as well received? Metroid, Mario, Zelda, Final Fantasy, Dragon Quest. Uh, just just for the record, Metroid Two was a Game Boy game, but I get what your point is. Uh, but, yeah, that's. It's. Um, I remember reading something like back in that particular era. A lot of them still. A lot of the companies still were not sure what would succeed, and so a lot of times they were like, "Okay, maybe this first game was a fluke, and we're not sure, but let's try something a little different and see how that goes." It's. Uh, yeah, there's some of that. I think that uh, a key to it is that these games were uh, made at a time when the notion of how a video game sequel worked was generally not super well understood. And so, like, the thought process was because you mentioned Mario in this, and the US Mario 2 is a very different game, but the Japanese Mario oh, yes. 2 is a very the same game. Uh, Kind of, yeah, like it's Super Mario for super players. But um, actually, I yeah. think it, um, like their American advisor at the time, who was like the biggest Mar- yeah Howard Phillips ever, specifically said, "Do not send this game to America because it is too ridiculously difficult." Yeah, too too difficult and too similar. Uh, which makes sense because in Japan it was a it was an early disc system title, so the idea was that it was like. Kind of a smaller thing that you made quickly. Uh, but yeah, uh, Super Mario USA, aka uh, Dream Factory, Duke, Duke Panic, uh, was, uh, that was a, a very different sequel, although uh, Miyamoto has in the years since claimed that a lot of the ideas that he was throwing around for a Mario sequel were ultimately incorporated into Doki Doki Panic, which means that he was always intending to make a weird sequel. But uh, the, the notion of what a video game sequel was was not as well... You know, there, there wasn't a lot of prior art to draw on. So is a video game sequel something that... Uh, take You know, games, as, as we understand them, at the time didn't really have sequels. There's not... It's not a baseball to... Like, you just keep playing baseball. Like, there's not a Monopoly 2, you just keep playing Monopoly. Uh, so, does a sequel to a game change its mechanics radically while keeping iconography? Does it try to be an improve, an updated improvement on what existed in the mechanics of the original? Is it a sequel to the story of the original? All of these are 
kind of asking these questions and like ultimately what we've usually come to is usually it's some kind of refinement on the mechanics of the other game but at the time there wasn't really a lot of set guidance this is what a video game sequel is so you get some you get some experiments and also just the design space wasn't well explored at the time like you look at some of these and like if you look at zelda 2 it shows obvious influence from the kinds of games that came out on Japanese PCs in terms of action RPGs at the time. And uh, the, the reasoning behind that is, you know, in part that this disk system was the only way to save in Japan at the time. And so it produced inherently games that were sort of longer or sort of more uh pc like at the time so that's why zelda 2 sort of ends up the way it does it's sort of it's why castlevania 2 sort of ends up the way it does uh but, but yeah uh so you know all, all of these are in this weird sort of place where uh it's there's there's a lot of different influences pulling on them to make them uh strange and just you know given the people making them at the time a, a game was, was not a nothing effort but i mean it was reasonable to assume that if you started a game in january you'd have been done with it for a bit by december uh and just that you know the space in which uh you could still just decide to do something weird and the audience wouldn't really have an expectation that you've done it wrong was much larger I mean, of course, they tended to take bigger swings. There wasn't as much money, there wasn't as much time, and there was just generally an appetite to be like, well, what can we do? I'm trying to think of, so. like, like regular-ass regular, regular -ass sequels on the NES, and, like, the only major one I can think of is Dragon Quest Two, And even that's yeah, kind of expanding things a good deal. Yeah, the original. it's it's expanding a fair bit, but in, in a way that was in line with the RPGs that Yuji Hori would have played that inspired him to make Dragon Quest, like Ultima and Wizardry. It's like Dragon Quest One is the one character, and now you're expanding it back to being a game of the party. You're reintroducing that complexity, but in the simplified space of Dragon Quest. Uh, Final Fantasy II is, of course, taking a much wilder swing by incorporating... Yes. A much more character-driven story and the weird uh keyword dialogue system that feels much more like a pc rpg or a table uh or influenced by kawasu's interest in tabletop rpgs uh and of course the infamous exp system all those are wild swings but in in as much as like it's still much more recognizably a sequel than say uh zelda 2 which is just fundamentally extremely different. Uh, and before Will starts complaining, I will bring up that I do think it's interesting to note that Zelda 2 was something that Miyamoto was kind of disappointed in, not because he thought the game was bad per se, but because when he, when they started working on it, they ha had a lot of ideas that they wrote down on paper, and the game that they made looked essentially exactly like the ideas they wrote down on paper. And the hope was that the thing that made it disappointing to him was that it was not that like when you when he was making a game, you know, part of the things that make it interesting and part of the things that make for a better game is when your plan changes based on what you can do or what you realize you can do or what you realize you can't do. And 
workaround. Uh, and Zelda 2 didn't really <laughs> run into any of those. It just it, they made exactly the game they meant to when they set out, and that was not terribly interesting to him. Or uh, many of us. Uh, I think Zelda 2 is interesting. Yeah, it's, it's um, interesting. It's just not good. Has its ups and downs. Um, Mostly downs. But yeah. There Down are some steps, people who uh, think Zelda 2 is the greatest Zelda of all time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're wheels as blood enemies. Yes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there are definitely. Uh, I'm, sorry for the, I'm uh, driving home now. Gotcha. There are definitely uh, NES sequels that are pretty normal. Like Mega Man 2 is kind of the setting the idea of like what a very quick normal sequel will end up looking like. It's just like. We saw what you didn't like about the first one. We have removed all of it, <laughs> and we have replaced it with things that we have learned to do better. Uh, they, that, that would be. They added two robot masters, which became the most. Yep. Uh, two robot masters, the Wily stages, but in general, like if you played Mega Man One, what you got out of Mega Man Two was probably exactly what you were expecting. Uh, yeah, they did the uh, one big thing that they removed, which I don't know if was because of feedback or whatnot, was the uh, point system, you know, for doing different stuff. Like, it, it was an arcade game. Uh, I believe that the point system was removed because it was originally an arcade game, and since it was no longer an arcade game and the points did nothing, they didn't bother. The points, the don't points matter. do not matter. Yeah. Uh... That's like, whose line is it anyway? Yeah, yep. that's what I was quoting, yes. I love whose line is it anyways? Mm-hmm. But, uh, that's the thing I was gonna say. Uh, yeah, just the idea of points in a Mega Man game is kind of pointless. It's, it's very strange. Uh, but yeah, uh, I would say that, uh, you know, Dragon Quest 3 and 4 are archetypal NES sequels. They are very much just sort of mostly like slightly different uh, reinterpretations. Like they add systems, but they're still very obviously. Uh, descended from the prior games. Uh, so oh. the thing I was thinking of Castlevania Three is like it adds the branching levels, but it's very much a return to form. It plays like Castlevania One. The threes often do this. Uh, Ninja Gaiden One, Two, Three. Those are all like very obviously uh, in step with each other. There's a lot of there's there's a lot more of these than you necessarily think of. It's just that like a lot of the major games from like. Uh, especially from Nintendo, are very uh, heavily experimental in their uh, sequels. Okay. Uh, anything else in the comments section? Or the, the chat, I should say? Draconian quest. Sorry. I... Did you just game over? Yeah, I sure did. I'll I don't do know why you turned that on. That's not true of any Dragon Quest game ever. I don't know why you would add that. I like it. I'll, I'll take your word. Remember, uh, this is Wheels we're talking about. He purposely places plays the games harder than they need to be. Yeah, but there's like hard yeah. and then they're stupid. Because yeah. <laughs> there's a tendency for freaking turn-based RPGs to be way too easy, as seems to be the case with the new One Piece game. Oh yeah, how is that? Has anyone I played have it? not played it for I that reason. <laughs> I might try it eventually. I want to see how Ilka does when they're just left on their own devices. Yeah. Anything in the chat, or should I move on to the next comment section question? Uh, nothing new in the chat. 
other than Newrang okay. saying he just watches YouTube or whatever, and RP Gamer. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, Doomerang. Okay. Will the PS5 end up being a... Uh, will the PS5 end up being a stopgap system or have a long lifespan? I don't think anyone can afford it to not have a long lifespan because if the, if the PlayStation 5 isn't... Uh, if the PlayStation 5 doesn't last at least seven years, uh, then if you started working on a game for it at launch, the system would be outmoded by the time that you finished it. Yeah. Uh, I really hope it has a long lifespan because I would like it to not be a regretted purchase at some point. Yeah, two years in, it sure ain't pulling its weight, yeah. Nope. Um, <laughs> I, thought we were, I thought we were going into year three already. That's what why I, I said two years in. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're about two years and three months into its lifespan. But uh, yeah, it, it's one of those things like... I. It, it can't afford to be a stopgap system for a multitude of reasons. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think it'll probably be... Uh, I, I don't think we're going to be seeing a new PlayStation until at least 2027. Uh, we might see, like, a mid... Uh, a a mid-generation upgrade, but honestly, I'm not even super bullish on that idea. It seems slightly... I don't know. It, it just does not seem like a super great idea. Uh, I mean, did you see the PSVR 2 lineup that they announced today? Ugh. Oh, Pew Nothing is has... suggesting nope, nope. PS5.5. <laughs> it's a high quality Honestly, game, I'm, I'm still very annoyed with this shift to making games VR, only because I am the one I am one of the small audience that can do VR at all. Is there a shift? There, there really isn't. I don't think you need to worry because the point I was about to make about PSVR 2 is that like 70% of the launch games are just ports of games from other VR platforms, often several years old. One of the launch games is Tetris Effect. That game came out, that game was like one of the marquee games for the PSVR 1 five years ago. Like, I will admit, there's only one VR game I want to play. What's that? Resident Evil 7 in VR? No. I was going to say 8, but. Nope, nope. Wheels. Who is our Lord and Savior? Nep Nep? Oh my god, that's right. Oh. There's VR in one of those that games. That's awful. Uh, yeah, the, um, Hyper Dimension, Nep or Mega Dimension, Neptunia uh, V2 has yes. a virtual reality version called V2. Yes, I forgot all about that. They made a weird re-release of that that includes VR. I feel yes. like I should point out that the unless that's made specifically for PSVR 2, it won't function on PSVR 2. It's not backwards compatible. <laughs> oh, yeah, sucks. well, I, I luckily own it on PC. Congrats. Yes, I bought it. I didn't even play it, but I bought it. You should not have done that. Uh, in any case, uh, what I was going to say was, I don't think that there, like, what I was going to say about the PSVR 2 lineup is that it feels like it has, it, it really... Uh, it, it really shows how on life support the VR ecosystem is that like everything is just something that came out years ago that they're still just porting to all the new platforms because none of them have emerged as a clear market leader none of them is enough to sustain the development costs of a large scale game like I think part of that is just because VR is still not 
like what we want. It's 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 not like um, you know the one that is previewed in uh, Bo Free, which is interestingly mm -hmm. called New World Online, but it's like a fully interactive MMO where everything you do affects your play your character. You like know, you can't have that level of immersion yet for VR, and that's what people want. People want the you... dot hack. You can't make that. Like that's not yeah. that's a big thing. I'm just, yeah, just why, gonna put that out there. This is why I'm this is a Yeah, and I'm well. I'm saying that I, I think that there's much more pragmatic reasons for this, and that's the versions that do the thing. The versions that do VR well are incredibly expensive. PS VR two is more expensive than a PlayStation five and requires a PlayStation five already, which means that the cost to entry is a thousand and fifty dollars before tax. Ugh. The, uh, but even if you look past all that, the issue is just that like VR is a fundamentally inconvenient way to play games. You have to be enamored enough of what it's doing to accept that it's okay that it's super inconvenient to actually play them. And mm -hmm. the issue you run into is the, and the thing that people just keep refusing to learn, even though we have seen it demonstrated time and again over decades, convenience trumps basically everything yeah. when it comes to entertainment. I got a great example. Say, of that's too. how the Switch was so good over everything else at the yeah. beginning. It was more convenient mm -hmm. to play. But even thinking of a recent uh, technology fad in 3D, which kind of yeah. went nowhere, the only thing that went somewhere was the 3DS. E even though, yes, mm -hmm. I know a lot of people didn't even use the thing, but it was it was convenient to use, which yes. made it less of a problem. Like even if you didn't well, want the 3D, a lot of later games stopped even incorporating the 3D. They they did, but that's that's besides the point. Was, my point is just power. yes. My point is just that a lot more the visual effect, but not right. necessarily any need to use it. My point is just that a lot more people used probably 3D in that than ever used in like any other 3D enabled outside system. of yeah, outside of like the handful of 3D movies before yeah. they got sick of it. Exactly, just uh, because of the simple convenience of it. Like you don't need any extra hardware. It just. And, per, and perhaps perhaps more importantly it does not make your experience worse if you don't want to use it like if you don't want to use the 3d on the 3ds you turn the slider off and you are playing a game if you don't want to use the 3d like if you want to use the 3d on a 3d tv it's a giant pain in the ass you need to have the glasses specific to your uh, tv for each uh person you intend to watch it with and you actually, it, it dimmed the screen and lowered the viewing angle. It made the TV less convenient, and that's a bigger problem. You look at it time and again, and the thing that most draws people to get in to play things is convenience. Like, we can, like, people like me can complain that I don't like mobile games. I think that most of them are pretty boring. But the thing is that it doesn't, like, they don't have to be the best game in the world. They have to be the thing that they have to be on the thing you already have the thing you already want to use does not matter like you know that that is why like mobile games didn't take over the world because uh mobile games were the best games around they can't took over the world because you already had a phone like you the value proposition of getting someone to rearrange their like their room or even just completely change how they're going to interact with their entertainment habits 
is diminished tremendously by just the harder you make that, the more you're going to drop people off. VR, good VR is expensive. Good VR is super inconvenient to set up. You only get good VR if you care a lot about good VR. Otherwise, you just get the same handful of people who have been saying VR is the future for seven years now. Like, it's, there's, there's just no, uh, there's just nothing for it. Like, there, you can't, there's no shortcuts, and that's, that's a problem. Like, you need, there, for VR to ever take off, there needs to be VR that is, entry-level VR that doesn't suck, that is relatively cheap, and that isn't a huge pain in the ass to set up. And, like, the ones that, you get to pick two of those, like, the ones that aren't a huge pain in the ass to set up are tip and that are good are tremendously expensive because they involve really complicated forms of tracking your uh, point in 3D space that uh, tracking your point in 3D space that don't involve having way stations and cameras. If you want something that is really high quality, uh, it's it, that doesn't have that it's still going to be expensive like there's and you know the low quality stuff what you find is that if you play with a low quality vr rig for a few minutes it's like okay that was novel and now i hate it <laughs> uh, yeah because yeah. There's, there's also just not a lot of software out there for vr either yeah so, because making have, software have for an physical weight of the headset yeah physical weight of the headset they're they're getting smaller but they're still like they they wear on your neck. Trust me. Uh, I remember that was the top comment at a Tokyo game mm. show that was featuring VR sets at one point. It's just like, oh, my neck hurts. Mm. It's everybody's comment. But yeah, like if you if you look at the PSVR two lineup, it's like, oh, there's 37 games in it. And it's like, yeah, and half of these are just ports of VR games that have been floating from platform to platform for five years. And it's like, yeah, there's not a lot of new people investing in this space. Hmm. It's uh, and and the few big companies that did experiments in it evidently didn't see much value in continuing to invest in the space. It's it's not a healthy looking ecosystem. I don't know. I, I don't really see any of the current players being willing to put the kind of work necessary in, or the willing to wait out the R and D issues long enough to make this something even approaching mainstream at this stage. Hmm. It's oh boy, that comment, Budai. That's something. What's up? Uh, well, Budai just put in the Twitch chat. I think the Wii U is better than the N sixty four. I mean, I see, even... if you go by a list of RPGs on the system and use that as the only metric, then sure. I mean, I'll, I mean, one of them doesn't have Aiden Chronicles, the first mage. So, I mean, how could the Wii U possibly compete? Yeah, by <laughs> not getting into that game at all. <laughs> I had a very good, I, I, need to, I need to tell you a beautiful I need to tell you a beautiful anecdote. I had a couple of friends who decided to play through Quest 64 because uh, in part because the kind of person who would decide to willingly be friends with me has questionable poses about <laughs> their life in at least one capacity or another. A couple of friends decided to play through Quest 64. I'm telling them this this game's not very good. I I would not bother you. I expect you both to get bored. They did both finish it. They had a reasonably good time. So they were like, we're gonna try playing some of the other like RPGs from that era that people say are bad. And I was like, 
I guarantee you, you will not get through Aiden Chronicles the First Mage. And they were like, no, that's what you said about Quest of the C4. That game's is, I'm sure there will be good things about it. They were both done in an hour. They could not. Wow. <laughs> wow. It's, it's worse than you think. However bad you think it is, it's worse and than you think. And then there's Ogre Battle 64. That's a good game, though. Exactly. You know, the, the N64 did have some gems. Um, there's Paper I, Mario, there's Aqua Battle 64. That's kind of it for RPGs, but still. Unless you count Aqua <laughs> uh, Time. I would not well, call I mean, that an RPG, but I suppose. There, uh, it influenced RPGs, so it's... Honorary. Uh, what was that? Isn't there a Super Robot Wars game on the 64? There is Super Robot Wars 64, which is a very good strategy RPG. Uh, that one's actually very uh, unique. It has some sort of rights tie up with the original generation's characters, so they've never appeared again. Uh, and it's one of the few games that has Giant Robot the Day of the Earth that's still in it, so I love it with all of my heart and soul. Uh, but still rights issues. Yeah, it has all sorts of rights issues. And the other thing that's kind of neat about Super Robot War 64 is that uh, it was just a quantum leap forward for how much... Uh, the games would allow the plots to branch. That game has has one of the most complex branching uh, mission structures in the entire series. Uh, but yeah, I was I going to say something about it? But uh, Super Robot uh, Super Robot War sixty four, Paper Mario, to Ogre Battle, Person of Worldly Caliber. That's kind of it for things that are unambiguously and unvarnishedly RPGs. Uh, then you've got the, the edge cases like uh, Hybrid Heaven, Ocarina of Time, Doors Map. There's some stuff there. Um, and then you have sort of the action, the adventure or action RPG like Quest 64, obviously the Zeldas. Um, I was talking about the good ones, so I didn't include Quest 64. The Zeldas on 64. <laughs> yeah, no, but I was saying yeah. that I, I included that in the edge cases. Oh, okay. Uh, speaking um, of yeah. Zelda, Budai says, explain the Zelda cycle, and did Breath of the Wild escape the Zelda cycle? What the fuck is the Zelda cycle? The Zelda cycle is that when a game come, when a Zelda game comes out, uh, in the previews, people are really excited. game comes out, people hail it as the best Zelda, uh, an incredible achievement. The game previous to it was a monstrosity that lost what made the series special. Then, once the... Uh, once a few years distance come from it, people start complaining that that last one sucked. It was disappointing. They clearly lost sight of it. And, uh, that the next, the hype cycle for the next one will, uh, it says that it will be the thing that fixes the series and brings it back to being as good as whatever your favorite one was. Oh, so it's the twilight uh, princess effect essentially. Yeah. Happened with twilight princess happened with skyward sword did not happen with breath of the wild i think because it's such a different game that it's very hard to actually compare it to prior zelda games uh there like is it. yes yes <laughs> Tam, say Tam, shush. there shush. is a backlash that exists against it uh and but it is not as much a part of the mainstream conversation around the game simply because it's so different from other ones that it's hard to just say like i don't like this as much as the prior ones because it's like that's like saying i don't like I don't like chocolate cake because it's not a steak. It's mm -hmm. just, they're just extremely different. <laughs> At least my issue has to do with my eyes and not with the game itself. Yeah, that's I fine. think the game I'll is give you a, a, a decent game. It's just, I can't get 
over the graphical style because the graphical style messes with my eyes because I have fucked up eyes. Yeah, that's rough. Yeah. And that's a perfectly legitimate reason not to like a game. Go ahead. Uh, Doomerang mm-hmm. says Twilight Princess is best Zelda. I stand by it. You know, we all have our bad opinions. It's okay, Doomerang. I think Twilight Princess <laughs> is very good. It's not my no, favorite, it is. but it's very, it very is. good. No, I, I bash on it a lot because, and that's mostly, I think, coming coming from the point of people bashing one of my favorite Zelda, Skyward Sword. So I have to punch down at what is often those people's favorite Zelda, even though if if you go back and look at it, I like almost every Zelda game except Zelda 2. So, you know, you'd please... It, unless I'm bashing Zelda 2, please take me bashing any Zelda game with a grain of salt. Grain of salt, because I've played them all a metric fuck ton. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think the like being, I think that Breath of the Wild 2, or Tears of the Kingdom, I, should, I need to get used to calling it that. I think Tears of the Kingdom will actually probably have a much harder time uh, simply by virtue of being a. Uh, by virtue of being having to follow in the on the heels of Breath of the Wild and having years of excitement about like yes more Breath of the Wild this will be yeah it, it's it's gonna there's gonna be a much more mixed opinion on Tears of the Kingdom than there was yeah. on Breath of the Wild. Uh, Doomwing uh, says Spirit Tracks I think, is a I two think out also of ten because game. they're trying to I think also because they're going to be co- incorporating the stuff you know the whole Sky thing which was from Skyward Sword I think because they're in incorporating some of that lore i don't think it's going to be also anything be, it could I, also cause some divisions there with people's i opinions. i i think people i don't are think reading, they're going to function the same way yeah i don't think <laughs> i think people are reading way too much into that i don't think it's going to have anything to do with skyward sword i just said the lore of it i'm not I, saying like mm, any anything more than just having some lore tidbits I not like the whole shebang of what Skyward Sword. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I think I think I'm we saying we I don't don't think here. I don't think that's even what's going on there. I think people are have there's the there's idea. a lot of weird time stasis stuff going on, yeah. which like Skyward Sword has some of that, but a lot of them have some of that. Yep. You know it's what my personal motif. favorite Zelda is? Hyrule Warriors. I, I, mean, I don't I don't have it in me to even just to even contemplate that. Um, All right, now hold on. I have to take Doomerang to task here because he says oh Zelda Spirit Tracks is a two out of ten game. It's despicable. No. Okay, number one, you fire that game up. That song that plays in the opening animation, wonderful. Okay, number two, uh, fist bumping Ghost Zelda, good shit. Uh, and number three, uh, you can toot the train horn. Therefore, it's ten out of ten. Indisputable. Thank you. Moving on. I, I didn't. I didn't play it. I didn't have the money at the time. Um, I, I played I, a little bit, but I kind of enjoyed it. I think I got stuck in a dungeon and moved on to something else, which is my normal take with a Zelda game. Yeah, those those games are fine. They're fine. Yeah, they're not the best, but I I, I never moved on to it just because I had issues with Phantom Hourglass, where my 3DS would spontaneously decide that the, the cartridge was not inside it. Oh god, I had tro- I had troubles with that. In... And this, this happened across three different copies. Of oh dear Phantom lord, that's weird. Turned it and I bought a different one. I had an issue with that game on my original DS, like original model DS, because it didn't seem to pick up the microphone. <laughs> that's rough. So the that's parts where you had to like say something or do some something like that. 
I would like shout at the thing and it didn't work. So That's rough, I will, like, the only game yeah. I ever shouted out was uh, Ace Attorney. Objection. Nice. Overruled. Any objection? Uh, let's see. Pudai uh, asks, "What are your feelings on theater, the, theater, theater rhythm, theater rhythm for consoles <laughs> and a controller versus stylus?" I mean, it had control, regular controls in the second edition on the 3DS. Yeah, and I think both I work well. Much depends on that. Yeah. I think they learned after the first one that you needed regular controls because there are some people who can't manipulate the styluses that well. It's one of those things. They they tried to make the game a little more forgiving. I think both control schemes work reasonably well. Yeah. Very excited for Final Bar Line. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's hit this last pass food guy question. Which SNES game has the best combat? And suddenly, when I was reading that question... All I could hear was da 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 So take your guesses from that. I know that one. Super Mario RPG. Yeah, it was Super Mario RPG. Yeah. I was like, I'm picturing this. Um. Um. Let's see. For me, because I played, I played almost all of the SNES RPGs that released in the U.S. Yeah, for me, it's it's fairly cut and dry. It's either that or Chrono Trigger, depending upon what I want out of the combat system. I honestly was a bigger fan. I, I like. Don't get me wrong. Super Mario RPG has a fun combat system. Um, I did not like always like the timing. Um, so for me personally, it was was uh, Final Fantasy VI because. You know, yes. like, yeah, you, not because you never fucking understand. Yeah, not because you know everyone can learn magic, but it was like always the uniqueness of their own special skills, or like having sets or you know dual wield dice and just go to town destroying pe people with the fixed dice. Yeah, like I said, I'll just never understand. <laughs> yeah, this, this this is exactly why I liked six more than five, even after getting to play. Five fully. Yeah, I don't. I don't get that. Like, I, I'm not counting that as like a battle system, just by virtue of I consider that the character advancement system, which is a little different. But it's a permeable membrane, so I get you. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, six and Chrono Trigger for me are the games I just obsessed obsessed over in that era. Yeah, yeah. For me, it was definitely uh, four, six, and Chrono Trigger that I played like all the time. Like I. I had whole spread. I actually had handwritten monster capturing spreadsheets laid out, like um, for for Gal's rages. I've actually spent. Yeah. I actually used to spend so much time on the Velt that I actually ended up with gl glitching the game out. Nice. And I don't it wasn't know how. Necessarily I'm... hard to do. No, but <laughs> six I, being like, what I, it was. Yeah, no, like, I would, but this is not laughter, like, you know, purposely glitching. This is just me doing, you know, trying to get Gauss rages, trying to learn magic, and, like, th after three or four hours of being on the Velt nonstop, the game would completely glitch out. FF6 is held together by duct tape and dreams. Yeah. Um, I, I believe it. Most dreams are I just remember trying to play the... the Game Boy Advance version in Japanese and just giving up on ever using Gao because I could not remember which monsters actually <laughs> did something 
positive. <laughs> yeah. Uh... I will admit the only the only like early on I would use Pterodon a lot, but very late game there is a mechanized weapon that's down in the um, buried castle. Um, I don't know what it's called now, but the original name was IO. On off, yeah. Um, and it had this attack called Flare Star, mm-hmm. and it was an AOE. It was kind of this, and it used the same graphic effect as the Crusader Magicite did, but it would only hit your enemies, and it was just super powerful, and very few things could absorb or resist it. So I ended up. So Gal became like one of my heaviest hitters because of that, because he could just wipe out whole groups of monsters with one go with it. Hmm. Yeah, my opinions on FF6 are a matter of public record. If I was going to put a Final Fantasy in the conversation, it'd be five. But... Let's see. Um... But yeah, I think that unless Gaijin has like another one to enter into the conversation. What was the what was the exact wording of the question? Which SNES game has the best combat? I suppose you could also include Super Famicom if that helps. <laughs> I mean, okay. First of all, I I hate overly broad best questions because in this case I've probably <laughs> played like four or five dozen Super Famicom Super Nintendo RPGs, mm-hmm. and uh... yeah, sometimes it's hard to narrow it to just one. But what's, what's I mean, one of your favorites? I was going to probably go with Romancing Saga 2 and 3. I was thinking that I had forgotten to mention one of the Romancing Sagas, because some of those yeah. are pretty cool. It just 2 and 3 together, just because they have largely the same combat system, just they had um, a few, I mean, the third one had some tweaks on it and stuff. But... Yeah, but they're fundamentally quite similar. Yeah, yeah. I I, mean, I always it, had trouble getting into Romancing Saga because I always felt like I advanced the story faster than I spent mm-hmm. time grinding, and I would just get my butt owned. Well, I mean, with Romancing Saga two, the other issue is that the in the background the monster levels increased proportionately to the number of battles you entered. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, the battle rank system. Yep. So there was there was always going to be a large section in the middle where the monster power was going to be outpacing yours, which is one reason why in Romancing Saga 2 a full party wipeout is not considered game over. Yeah, 2 is very much built around... (laughs) Yeah, 2 is very much built around this idea of like, oh yeah, party wipe is just a excuse to make you do something else. In fact, I remember reading a a post on a forum years back where this one like long-time veteran CRPG player who was big into wizardry back in the day realized that remains in saga too was remarkably similar in basic philosophy mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. you put party together you go out you try to beat something up you possibly die then you put another group together and try it yeah and if you it's one of those situations where like you know you, you just if you approach the game on the terms that it was designed for you can have a great time with it some people can't yeah. and that's okay but it's yeah, really but neat if you do, do. I do but, wish that it had gotten a better update like the first game did, just to like spruce up this story and presentation mm. a bit. Well, but, I um, mean, no, knowing now that that is how the game is supposed to work, because that's the thing, if people don't know mm-hmm. something like that, because that's really important knowledge to try and enjoy a game, if you're uh-huh. 
getting if you're constantly restarting and you're getting to this point where you're dying like that and you have no idea why and it's not explained to you that yes this is how the game is supposed to work you're going to get frustrated and consider it a bad game yeah this is why my original impression for scarlet grace started off with this is fair warning <laughs> It's like, yeah. this is not a review, this is not an impression, this is fair warning, because you should not go into a stock <laughs> game without some idea of what's going on. Uh, as long as you can mentally prepare yourself for what you're about to experience, you might have a great time. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay. Uh, part of our New Year's resolution is to make sure that we always answer at least one question from the big list. Let me pull that out. Oh, hold on, one more. Otherwise, we'll never get rid of the list. One more this... quick one from Budai in the Twitch chat hype level for yeah. Octopath 2. Uh, I'm interested, but I keep forgetting that's out in like February. It's yeah. real close. I mean, my but hype... I do like. I was just gonna say my hype level is high, but I, I don't. I don't have the fucking time. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things I'll probably pick up fairly early on, and yeah. then it will it will find time when I am in the mood for it to play it. Like the things they're saying about like. Oh, we're going to make it so that the characters interact more and intertwine them a bit more. It's like, oh, cool! I like you're keeping the thing I like, but you're also like addressing yeah. the fact that people felt a little too separate in the original. You know what? We're what three, four weeks into the new year now. Yeah, I have played exactly one game. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I'm not counting. You know, Final Fantasy 14, which is an MMO that's going to be constantly ongoing, so I don't count that. I am playing video game. I'm sorry for the I loss of your time. Mobile game. The only actual game I have played this year, like with any consistency, is a relayer. And and that is it. And I've actually been really enjoying that one. The hell is relayer? Uh that is the mecha RPG that was previously produced by or Katakawa Games before they split off and are now calling themselves Doragami Games. What? Yeah, it's the guys who made God Wars. What? Uh, Tell me more. You can do that after the show. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yes, sorry. So I I will admit I'm kind of hyped for it, but at the same time, I've just not much has been drawing my interest this year for me wanting to play stuff. Because I I sit and look at my game list like, I feel like playing this, but at the same time, I don't. Yeah, my, the big issue for Octopath 2 for me is just what's coming out opposite like a Dragon Sheen, which is going to eat my time. Oh, fuck. When does that come uh, out? February. Fuck me. <laughs> Why? Uh, Why? I think I've told you this literally every episode of the podcast this year and every time you're taking place. Yeah, I know. It's fucking... No, no what, what, I'm, what, what I'm going to find funny is when he asks, when's that out? Two days ago. What? Yeah, That's you're gonna, gonna like there's when's that out? There will be now. What? It's on my desk right now? <laughs> there is going there's going to be a point where I have started into the game and you're going to be asking when it comes out. Oh my god. <laughs> How would it this, I, I just I came into this year as like, okay, you know, it's gonna be a little bit before there's like a mountain of releases and it's like okay. No. No, no, no. no. Fire Fire Emblem Octopath. Void ter- Terrarium 2. Uh, do you want video games? I do. I mean, Maybe I, too I much, apparently. Hunt, so I've got extra time to do stuff. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm going to buy that, but uh, I, I'm, I already have a stack of those together. 
so I'm not worried about that. Okay, uh, I'm gonna hit a couple of these questions in the big list before I fall asleep and die. Um, is there a risk in making FPS sport or any other multiplayer game console exclusives? It depends a lot on having as many players as possible. Not as much as you would necessarily think, because the giant group of players generally don't get to play cross-platform for a multitude of reasons. But mm -hmm. uh, in general, like if you if you want it to be an esports game, then yes, releasing exclusive to one platform is a huge risk. Yeah. Uh, yes, like for say, you know. Halo 5, trying to make that an eSport when it's only on the least the popular, popular, the least popular console. console at the time. Uh, we had a great time playing that on Shenanigans. It's really Man, fun. That game is rad, and people still shit on it, and I just, I just don't, tragic. I don't get it. Fine, we'll have four players this week. It'll be great. Yes, uh -huh. I can't wait. Can't wait. Oh, what what are you guys playing this week? Halo, Halo 5. Halo 5. Oh, okay. Okay, uh, but yeah, uh, I, I think the in general, uh, this, it, for for certain kinds of games, this has become more of a problem. I would say that for something like a uh, Fortnite, which is built around again accessibility, make it meet the player where they are. Uh, it being exclusive to one platform or segregated, it's segregating its player base to specific platforms is a huge problem for that video game. Yeah, uh, you you want to have that broad player base that can play with as many people as possible. But uh, yeah, it, for the most part, I think that the thing that keeps these multi-platform is just the logistics of AAA development rather than uh, any sort of risk inherent to uh, single console development of a multiplayer title. Because again, mo most of these are kind of just the player base for that console is the player base for that console. You just kind of flip up. Uh, speaking of sports, anyone remember when the Genesis was known for their sports games? I wonder if it's just a cultural thing or EA had something to do with it. EA had everything to do with it. EA had everything to do with that. If you aren't aware of the story, uh, Electronic Arts, when they decided to make Genesis games, uh, reverse engineered the lock, the like party third-party licensee lockout and essentially came to Sega of America with a ultimatum either you give us a better deal on making games licensed or we will go ahead and make them unlicensed uh and uh sega folded and ea uh made their made their games on the genesis and they uh, definitely favored the system that they had a sweetheart deal with and so they're the genesis versions uh, as well as the fact a lot of their Development talent were people who were used to working on PCs and the Amiga. Genesis has a lot of things in common with the Amiga. Uh, so, you know, you run into that multitude of things, causes their sports games to lead on the Genesis and to be generally better on the Genesis, which, you know, produces this effect of the Genesis is known for having great sports games. But if you look at the uh, things before EA steps in, uh, you get some real ropey shit from Sega. <laughs> get your Tommy Lasorda. Yeah, you get your Tommy Lasorda baseballs, which yeah, it's it's fine. It's not much different from a Famicom baseball game in most particulars. Uh, or my personal favorite, uh, Buster Douglas heavyweight boxing. 
anyone anyone aware of short-lived heavyweight champion Buster Douglas? Nope. Uh, I am only because I've heard of the game title before in some video I watched off of YouTube, but that's it. So the thing that's very funny about Buster Douglas uh, boxing and the uh, excuse me, James Buster Douglas knockout boxing was its full proper title. Uh, but uh, the, the thing that was funny about that was that uh, so yep. whoops uh, but yeah, the thing that was funny about that, it was, it was not as final blow in Japan. Uh, the Mega Drive version was, uh, the American Mega Drive version was published by Sega. It was originally a Taito game in Japan, but they published it in, uh, America and they rechristened it as James Buster Douglas Heavyweight Boxing, or Knockout Boxing, excuse me. And the thing that's very funny about that is the choice of Buster Douglas as the champion, uh, or as the as the cover star for their game, was because he was the guy who I, I want to say he was the guy who took the belt off Tyson. Because uh, they make a good juxtaposition for Mike Tyson's punch out. Yeah, like it was very specifically like, uh, you know, Sega is going to take the belt from Nintendo the way that. Douglas took the belt from Tyson. Uh, and so uh, they, they uh, signed him to an extremely uh, expensive uh, deal uh, relative to what, uh, relative to the time. Uh, and then, like, within a month of them paying all that goddamn money, uh, he lost the belt and was never entitled to contention again. So that's oops. uh <laughs> oops, that's that's the that's the canny acumen that Sega would show. Uh, I want to uh, the thing that makes this a funnier contrast with uh, Mike Tyson's punch out is that uh, Nintendo scooped up Mike Tyson before he was champion. Wow. He was uh, Minoru Arakawa, the president of Nintendo America at the time, had seen a match that he was in, was impressed, and said that they should try to uh, pick up his likeness for the uh, NES uh, version of Punch Out. And so they did, and they got him before he was champion when he was relatively mm. speaking cheap. Psyche <laughs> <laughs> so got Buster Douglas at his most expensive just before he became no longer a hot commodity. It's incredible how tragic that is. Well, not, even, not even a hot commodity before he came, became no commodity. Yeah, pretty much. I want to say Buster Douglas, like, the, the story of any given heavyweight boxer uh, at any point, like, it, it's a story that only ends in tragedy. No one retires on top and everyone ends up uh, in a tragic place. Buster Douglas was a very quick uh, fall, and I want to say that he's, I once had a friend outline every single, like, weird fate that befell, like, a 90s heavyweight champion. And I want to say that he might be the one that like developed really unhealthy eating habits and nearly died of a diabetic coma. Wait. So yeah, it's it's real ugly what happens to heavyweight boxers, but it's one of those things where it's like, Jesus. Yeah, he, he would he would not be in a great place after that. But uh No, I'm just I'm actually remembering a, a plot line from Ash I think it was Ashton Joe, the boxing movie. Yeah. Yeah, Ashton Joe is incredible. 
where it was like later in the series where one of his former rivals just kind of showed up at a at an event, and the guy was suffering very obvious concussive. Yeah, Peter Lester dementia, CTE, yeah. and needed help buttoning his shirt, and so the main character was trying to help button his shirt and realized that he couldn't do it. Yeah, that's right before the climactic uh, storyline of Ashtonojo. Ashtonojo is incredible uh, for anyone who hasn't read or watched it. Uh, absolutely worth tracking down. Yep. Uh, just, the, yeah, just the moment and the look on his face when he realized that he was looking at his own future right there. Yeah, it's and it's really not, dark. Not distant either. Yeah, it, it's uh, Ashtonojo is not a uh, accurate... Uh, portrayal of the mechanics of being in a boxing ring, but it is an accurate portrayal of what giving your life to boxing does to a person. Mm-hmm. For good and ill. Um, and uh, the other thing I want to say for anyone who's not read uh, Ashtono Joe or watched it, is that uh, the uh, fight that marks the climax of the first half uh, the and the lead up to it between uh, Joe Yabuki and Kishi is just some incredible fucking drama. Uh, yeah, what, and... who, who's the uh, who's the boxer who's the brother of the uh, YouTuber? Thinking of Logan and Jake Paul. I don't want to think about them. I'm thinking about Ashton well, right now. Yeah, no, but uh, <laughs> but I, you brought up something, and I remember seeing a news article uh, last year or year before where he. He's like, yeah, I know there's no way to diagnose this until you're, you know, you're dead and they're actually looking at your brain. CT, all yeah. But he already can tell that he's suffering some of these side effects from his like, boxing career. Yeah, I mean, you getting getting hit repeated concussions is mm-hmm. like it's inevitable that you. It's really as much about severity as anything. Else. But, yeah, uh, that's the only reason I bring it up is because you know, as you said, you know, he recognized that he he was facing his own, you know, what he was going to become here, you know, very shortly, you know, and they, even real life boxers can t- can tell when they're done. I think the fact that Mike Tyson is in a decent shape as he is is he kind of stopped sooner than some. Yeah, for dark reasons, but still. Um, yeah, for dark reasons, but I, you know, I think he's managed to pull himself up a lot better after all that happened mm. than some of these other ones who have spiraled into, you know, like as you said, um, I forget James Buster, whatever his name is. Sorry, I, Buster, I'm Douglas, terrible yeah. with names. Um, you know, where he almost died from a diabetic coma from from poor eating habits because. You know, and some of it too is they. Some of these people use boxing as a way to get out of bad life situations, and then once they're no longer able to do that, they have no nothing to keep them from dipping back into it. The the answer for any for anyone whose job is getting punched in the head is that if you had a better option, you would have t- taken it long ago. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, um, that's any... getting us far afield, and we're probably just about out of time. But I will leave with one left. at the stream right now? I no, have, I am not. I have Why? a question. Can you just pull it up real okay. quick? Uh, yeah, I'm, I will, I'm, I, I'm still I on leave, my phone because I'm in my car. Okay. I leave you with one last important 
uh, proclamation that you should absolutely read or watch Ash Snowjo. Uh, is this referencing what I think it's referencing? Thinking it's referencing uh, prior Dragon Quest game? The answer is yes. Nice. <laughs> nice. The okay. answer is that there's like some weird version of a prior Dragon Quest that seems to have passed into legend in Dragon Quest Eleven. Sweet. Well, okay. I'm, no spoilers. I'm also, if get, yeah, if you get the true ending of Dragon Quest Eleven, it will explain many things. Interesting. But the true ending is a long slog. It's worth doing, though. As can be expected from Dragon Quest. Yeah, but well, yeah. you have to beat the game once, and then you have to do stuff and beat the game a second time and then you have to do more stuff to Jeez. beat the true final boss pretty cool um, yeah no it's totally worth it but it's a long slog I wouldn't really call it a slog but it's interesting uh, but yeah uh, in conclusion go read Ashton and Joe um, um, uh, Budai has one last quick question What's that? What's that? Uh, why does it seem Musou's spin-offs are more enjoyable than the main series? Uh, uh, I need more I think information because I don't agree. I, I assume what, you don't think that uh, something like Persona 5 Strikers is better than, than Dynasty Warriors 9? Oh, oh, I read that totally wrong. Uh, I read yeah, that. Yeah, I as... assume that's what he's... Okay. Yeah, I, thought he was, I thought he was going like Fire Emblem Warriors better than Fire Emblem. Yeah, I thought that too, but yeah. yeah I, I, I think, don't. I yeah, think what he's I, saying I see is, what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, and and he can correct you. I think it's because we're able to connect it to something we enjoy more so. So some no, people I know hardcore Muto fans that think the Dynasty Warriors has been a tailspin for a while. Yeah, well, especially after 9, which original 9 is not good, and Empires, some people really like the Empires 9 better, but it's still not considered a good one. I am hoping to hear really good things about Dragon uh, Dynasty Warriors 10 that is supposed to be announced sometime this year. Mm. But yeah, I would, I would say that also uh, the the issue is a certain rigidity of formula of Dynasty Warriors. The one time that they tried to completely break that up, they produced Dynasty Warriors 9, which ended very poorly. Uh, but the addition of uh, it's also con you know it's additions to things that we enjoy like Zelda or Fire Emblem or Persona you know I these mean, spin-off ones that are you know not part of the main Muso stuff is stuff that we enjoy already so we have an easier way of connecting to it that's I, at least I my mean, yeah yes but also yeah I think having that, but... yeah, having played like Having played those and like some of the main series, um, I think it's there's, a lot more than that. There's a rigidity to what you can do in the context of Dynasty Warriors, yeah. and it's clear that it feels clear to me that the team wants to do more ambitious things. Yeah, and like, like uh, Dimarine brings it up, uh, they, they're kind of a, they seem to be kind of a Dynasty Warriors and apologists, but they like Samurai Warriors uh, five way better, and like. I played a lot of Dynasty Warriors games uh, at various rental points throughout history, but like I always liked Samurai Warriors more, and I don't really have a great deal more context for it. It's just one of those things. It feels like some of the other things they just like. There's more 
a sense of care and freedom put into them. Yeah, uh, I think... Uh, Except for the first one for Samurai Warriors. That one was, like, super rigid in its uh, level yeah. structure. Yeah. Um, I played some of the One Piece games before I really had watched the or yeah, and had much interest in, in them in the like the overall series. So I wasn't super connected to One Piece, and I felt like those games played a lot better than any of the Dynasty Warriors games I played. And you know, looking at that and looking at like the first Hyrule Warriors, to me, it just felt like those games did used the idea of a Muso much better than the actual main series do themselves. Like just Hy Hyrule Warriors does a great job of just keeping you engaged throughout any one battle. Because there's always things going on, there's always new objectives. It just going go here, do this, fight these things. It just keeps you going. Whereas a lot of the Dynasty Warriors games it's kind of just a slog with... And some of that may also be to do with the uh, with being somewhat not totally but somewhat tied to the uh, semi semi historical semi legendary battles that the fucking romance of the three right. kingdoms is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a little t it's married yeah. with short material and you can't go beyond that. Yeah, mm -hmm. they've also uh, incorporated many characters who were never really I can barely hear what you're saying. I think we're losing Tam. Rip. Uh, well, we should probably get it done about now as well. Yes. Uh, okay. Gaijin. I must have hit something on my phone as I switched it, but yeah. Uh, and they've also incorporated like a bunch of characters who were never, you know, combat characters in those stories, just to keep things moving in the in the games. Keep having new characters, but yeah. Uh, Gaijin, tell me about books I can read. Oh. Oh, sorry, I'm, I, I've been fighting the same final boss for this entire length of time here. Oh, <laughs> hey. Oh, oh, I know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let, let me tell you, sir. Mm -hmm. Good luck. <laughs> I had to talk Will through that final boss. Yeah. Well, the, the the big thing in the background is almost down to zero hit points. Oh, I, I reduced the difficulty just to finish that final boss and see the end. Because Will was playing on hard. Yeah, it was. It <laughs> was. Uh, oof. That's, yeah, a, that's yeah. a lot of fight. Yep. But, but yeah, I hear there are princesses and pizza parlors, and none of them have any issues with the open game license, which is helpful in this day and age. Oof. <laughs> Well, there's a, there's theoretically, a, yes, we hope so. Um, <laughs> yeah. so there's a, that, oh, I mean, uh, a huge part of the open game license was originally not really so much as to give permission as it was to give a promise that they were not going to go previous and owners sue you, yeah. and sue everything into existence through basically economic versions of slap suits. Uh, well, there's yeah. um, new information out on the open game license. Yeah, no, just, I was just making a joke. Don't worry about it. Yeah. That's a that's way too much to get into for the end of a podcast. So, yeah, yeah. So, yeah no, I'm just saying there's new new things out on that as of yesterday. I, I know. If anyone hasn't well, seen I'm, it, I'm go Google I'm it. I'm reading it. Uh huh. Um, yes, Princesses of the Pizza Parlor. Um, not officially affiliated with any of the games that it major might tabletop potentially resemble in some non-actionable <laughs> manner. 
and being very careful on its monster choices at the same time, let me tell you. Um, but yes. Um, so if you enjoy tabletop RPGs, if you enjoy playing them, if you enjoy watching other people play them, because let us face it, this is an entire segment of the YouTube economy at this point, which is currently under threat. Again, that's, that's neither here or there at the moment. Um, but if you think you might enjoy all of that in ebook or dead tree format, then we have Princesses of the Pizza Parlor by Michael Yarimizu, Y-A-R-I-M-I-Z-U, um, Again, available on Kindle and Kindle Unlimited in episodic format or in dead tree format for collections. Um, the, yeah, the author's birthday sale is sadly over. So you missed but your It's chance. still very cheap, so give it a shot. But, <laughs> oh, yeah, but I mean, it's it's still less... I mean, any given episode is going to be like less than a half to a third of the price of your average Starbucks latte, so what's, are you, what's, what's stopping you people? Um, aside from your obvious yeah. caffeine addictions. Hey... <laughs> Oh, you, you weren't you specifically steal, calling me out. I'm sorry. You just steal the office coffee for one day, and then you have some reading material the next time you go to Starbucks. It's, yes, <laughs> but it's not as good. Okay, yes. you know what? I'm just going to shut up. Yeah. You like already I, own the books. You don't get a complaint. That's true. <laughs> In fact, I, I've been enjoying looking at the results for the sale, because it looks like, uh, what was it, 499 copies of the first ebook. Nice. Nice. Given nice. away for free. Yeah, um, giving away and, for free, but that's that's more eyes on. And fifteen down ballot purchases so far. Eh, that's so, not too bad. And um, something along the lines of eight hundred pages read on Kindle Unlimited. Excellent. Nice. Most of which is just the paralogue, because the paralogue is that long. <laughs> <laughs> One person no... reads the paralogue, they'll get to those eight hundred pages. <laughs> Pretty close. Um, yeah. I mean, but that's what happens when it's you start with an episodic format and then realize that it makes no, that this story will make very little sense if you actually break it into episodes. Such um, life. So yeah, so m most of the collections are like three or four episodes worth of material, and or and the paralogue is seven episodes in length. <laughs> so it's like you just decided to double the length of the series all at once. Yeah, very close, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, increased, the... it increased the total word count of the series by like thirty percent. If nothing else, then I'm glad that there was uh, that people at least gave it uh, gave it a look. Hopefully, we get to see the fruits of that over the course of the year. But... Oh yeah, it, I usually see it over the next two to three months. Hmm. I'm just hoping I actually get some more reviews. That'd be nice. It, it would be nice. Uh... Especially since so, the more I learned you, about if how... If you took advantage of the author's office. birthday sale, maybe give that a look. Maybe uh, give a review. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, especially as I learn more about how the Amazon algorithms process reviews and stars and things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So long story yeah. short, folks, um, Amazon works on an either-or method of processing these things. It's either good or it's not, and this does not jive with the five stars that you're looking at at all so, so um apparently anything with an aggregate of four and a half or less will get reduced time on advertising and anything three or below will have no chance of advertising Incredible. um because it's basically working on the old game facts rules of if it's not a 10 it's crap i'd love to i'd love to uh, like essentially incentivize uh re people review bombing things that they don't like that's great isn't it no, Fair no, enough. it's not. 
too serious for sarcasm <laughs> yeah okay let's get this let's get this shit done because i'm tired and we'll okay. be evidently tired as well uh, <laughs> wheels tell them about shenanigans uh, we do a Sunday night stream, uh, midnight Eastern time on my channel, twitch.tv slash askwheels, where we play multiplayer games. Uh, it's me, me, Dave, and a good friend, Smoking Joe. Uh, you and... can check the Twitch channel out that's smoking... twitch.tv slash smokingjoegamer. Yes. Wanted to do that for him. <laughs> uh, last week we played Halo 5, which we'll be continuing this week, which was a very good time. Very yeah, under... we had a good time. I was very bad at it. It's great. Yes. Very <laughs> underappreciated entry in the Halo, Halo we, series. We kept, I can't talk to them. We doing ground slams into each other. Yes, but uh, it's a very good underappreciated entry in the series because it's the one that was exclusive to the least favorite Xbox. Coral uh, X-Bone. Yeah. But I swear but it is, I swear it is very game. good. Uh, so we're going to be continuing that and then probably continue on to Infinite. And then, um, I mean, if we're having fun... We, we might do Gears. Yeah, we might do Gears or circle back to some of the other Halos. Uh, we do Crackdown 3 co-op. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Uh, I would like to do ODST co-op because I have not actually played through that. That's the one I have not actually played through. It's wild. No, maybe we can do that. Uh, but yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and of course you can watch the stream of the recording of episodes usually every Wednesday. Sometimes it gets shunted to different days of the week. Uh but on the same channel, twitch.tv slash askwheels, usually at around uh, midnight Eastern, 9 p.m. Pacific, on usually Wednesdays, sometimes Thursdays. Uh, uh, Tam, you, you hear enough to plug the RP Gamer streams? So, that sounds like. <laughs> I, I excited into it. <laughs> So, uh, yes. I almost heard that. <laughs> you can catch me. Uh, oh. Yeah. Uh, we don't, we're not getting you enough. Uh, yeah, I'm hearing maybe a third of what you're saying. Uh, yeah. You can catch Tam and many heard? other lovely streamers on the twitch.tv slash rpgamer. Uh, there's there's a lot of people keeping all sorts of different hours, and they all have uh, they are united by playing uh, some of your favorite RPGs of today or yesteryear. But they uh, everyone has their own uh, sort of uh, vibe they go with. So I'm sure you can find someone you can learn to love on the RPG Gamer Twitch streams. Uh, okay, at least know my phone has very good noise canceling. <laughs> that that is good. Uh, what time are you on the RP Gamer streams, Tam? Uh, I am Almost. usually on Tuesdays and Thursdays um, so. at uh, 11 a.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Uh, Mountain Time. And then uh, sometimes I do late night streams uh, over the weekends, uh, Friday nights sometimes. But hmm. uh, we've got a much fuller schedule with a lot of different people right now, so... There's usually something going on at least every single day. 
And uh, right now, I've actually been playing Relayer on the stream. <laughs> mm. So you can you can evangelize that to Wheels once we finish recording. Uh, yes. <laughs> but uh, what was I going to say? Uh, otherwise, you can ask us questions. A big hearty thank you to uh, Doomerang, to the returning Budai, it's been too long, and to Fireminer for providing our questions this week. Uh, yes, thank you, you guys can... for giving us stuff to talk about. Yep, you can ask questions. Uh, we actually got questions basically every which way tonight. You can ask this question via the Discord, like Fireminer did when he gave us a list that will last us until the end of human uh, achievement. Uh, you can ask uh, via the comment section, like Budai did a few weeks ago, and we just finally got back to. Apologies for that, but hey, we got to them. And you can ask us questions via the chat if you catch us while we're recording. We're always happy to pick things up from there. Uh, if you want to join the Discord, which is always the most convenient way to ask us questions, uh, then I would recommend going to rpgamer.com and clicking the community tab, which will get you a quick invite. It's a lovely uh, little Discord community, even if you don't want to ask us questions. But hey, if you if you do join, yeah, give it a shot. We, we and, tend to... And, hmm? and, I, and I'm usually uh, lurking on the Discord, so if something gets brought up, I'm usually pretty good at tagging someone so it gets noticed. Hmm. But, yeah, uh, in any case, uh, so, you know, it, it's a nice little community whether you want to talk, uh, whether you want to ask us questions or not. There's always good, a good discussion happening there. Uh, as for uh, I feel, but yeah, th and of course, you can also, if you would like, leave questions under the comments under this very episode. We usually check the last three to four episodes just to make sure we don't miss any. So feel free to uh, do that if that is your preference. But uh, otherwise, uh, if you want to follow us on social media, uh, Wheels definitely has a Mastodon of some sort. Mastodon.lol <laughs> as Ask Wheels. Mm -hmm. Uh, I occasionally post on co-host, co-host, uh, I want to say org slash fanboy master. Uh, and I there, one of those. Yep. Uh, there, if you see me on there, I will either be, uh, posting low quality shit posts or long chin stroking about whatever I am playing. So yeah, uh, give it a look. I think yeah. that pretty much wraps uh, us up. Yep, yes. I think that gives us, uh, puts us at the end. So, uh, see you, Space Cowboys. See ya. Mm. Bye.